Welcome to the River of Suck podcast, episode 11. You have to suck at something before you can be good at it. I am your host, Andy Reiner. I, too, am swimming through the River of Suck constantly, every day, but with a growth mindset. Thanks for joining my guests and I on this journey into fear and existence. My guest today is Ann Madden, a research scientist, science communicator, and engagement strategist. Hey, Ann, how's it going? Awesome, Andy. Awesome? Why is it awesome? Because I get to talk with you and share some stories. You really love to work with microorganisms. I do. I love microorganisms in a way that I often hear people talk about loving their pets. It's much more than just a profession. So as Mm -hmm. a microbiologist, I study them, but I am fascinated by them. I find inspiration in them, and I think they're beautiful. Beautiful and small. Mighty, but powerful. So for a while in life, I didn't know how to define myself because I have a lot of jobs and I take a lot of gigs. Right. And I realized that the best way to describe myself is mission focused, which I highly recommend. If you don't have a mission statement is to sit down and think about what your mission is. Yeah. And so my mission is to reveal the utility and relevance of the microorganisms around us. And I do this as a research scientist, I do this as a science communicator, and I do this as an innovation and engagement specialist. So basically, I get to find new microbes in the world, new species, discover them and explore. Then I get to highlight their relevance by showing how they can make our lives better, making better beer or making new therapeutics. And then as an engagement specialist and scientific communicator, I get to share their stories with the world and let you know about all the ways that microbes are helping your life that you may not know yet. So here at the River of Suck podcast, we have a concept called the USU. If you want to be a happy person, I think you need to find what it takes to make you feel like the youest you that you can be. So I'm wondering two things, which is what makes you feel the youest you and how did you get there? And how does it involve sheep? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the youest you is, I think, such a core concept. And if I could answer it, I feel like then I would be on the mountaintop and have a lot of things figured out. And so I think I'm still working on on identifying in myself what Mm. makes me the meest me. The meest me is someone who's creatively solving problems, exploring the world, and finding joy in the mundane. Mm. And the origin of that probably starts back when I was in middle school, they're around. And I suffered from major depression. And it was awful. I even had a phobia of school. So this is funny later as someone who's been through so many years of schooling. Yeah. Um, I think I overcompensated. But during middle school, had a phobia of school. <laughs> things were awful. And this was back at a time where there wasn't a lot known about depressive disorders. Hmm. And so I was on every medication in the world that doctors could think of. And each one held the promise of taking me away from the darkness. And they kept not working. And so there's really nothing more frustrating as a child than being told, don't worry, don't worry, this will fix it. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't. Oh. And so with time, 
um, things got better with different uh, pharmaceutical interventions and work uh, and playing with sheep and spending time in the quiet with sheep. Sure. Sheer. (laughs) Sheer. Oh, so good. (laughs) But um, I also, during that time, came back to school and took a science course. And in Uh. one of these science courses, it was anatomy and physio. And we were dissecting a cat. And I love cats, so this is emotionally traumatizing. Charged. Yeah, charged is a better word. But I saw that, you know, underneath our skin, there's muscles and bones. And bones don't move, and muscles just pull them close together. Hmm. And with that simple principle comes all of the dynamic movement that is dance, that is our ability to play music and speak. And I loved that such a simple principle could predict all of these emergent things that seem so magical. <laughs> and that's what science was. And so I think Whoa. that's what cool. brought me to that part of who I am. It's pretty cool that you were afraid of school and that it caused you stress, but yet you didn't quit when it was hard. You got a doctorate. Like, that's cool. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. In high school, my parents didn't ever think I would graduate. They thought that I might get High a school. jury. Uh, so ninth grade is kind of the okay. The inflection point was ninth and tenth grade. And before that, in ninth grade, there was wow. a big question about whether I'd ever graduate high school. And so six billion years later, maybe 15 years of school later, I don't know, so many years of school later. It's hard to be a kid and know what you're supposed to do with your life. And it's like, what are you going to do? What are you going to go to college for? It's like, I don't know. I'm a kid. <laughs> I just need to be a kid for a little while longer. Yeah. And then, (laughs) yeah, what is your purpose? What is your value to society? What is is it that you do uniquely well? Oh, yeah. And what also makes you happy doing it? (laughs) And we'll pay you. That's a lot to figure out when you're like 14. Yes. In your TED Talks, the thing that you do right off the bat is to make people aware of their uncomfortability around microbes and the way that we think about it. We need to move past the era where we're like sterilizing everything, cleaning everything. Oh, no, it's dirty. Well, maybe we need that to live. You're trying to bring us into the future of microbes instead of this bizarre past. Yeah. So when... When we talk about microorganisms, we're talking about over a trillion species that live around us. But most of us only have kind of a few microbial moments. And those (laughs) microbial moments are like, oh, I remember that time that I had strep throat. I hate those microbes. Or the microbes that we know are associated with rot and decay and human waste. Hmm. And so those are oftentimes the associations think of with microbes. <laughs> but that's just like an alien coming to our planet and meeting animals. And the two animals that they got to meet were sharks and tigers. Hmm. And they're like, we should get rid of all animals. They have big teeth. They can eat us. That seems mean and horrible. We should get rid of animals. Whoa. Yeah. You're like, wait, wait. Let me show you kitten videos. The world is so much better if you just learn about more animal species. Yeah. And like, here's a burger. Like, life gets better the more animals you get to know. When I gave my TED Talk, it seemed like a lot of the audience was afraid of microorganisms or revolted by microorganisms. Yeah. Um, there was a, 
and a want to sterilize things to to kind of move away from those things that could be gross. I have hand sanitizer in my pocket right now. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of hand sanitizer. I want to be clear. Some microbes are not our friends. Okay. But it's interesting in the last few years, there's also been this kind of counter movement of the microbiome mm-hmm. and these microbes that are inside us that have so much promise to make our lives better. And it's interesting because now a lot of my work in communicating the science of microbes is about what the microbiome can do, but also to be wary of some of the claims around some companies that are saying, the microbiome is the silver bullet of everything. You had a bad day. Your succulent looks wilted. You need extra kittens in your life. The microbiome will save you. (laughs) Well, I hear that it does. I'm taking probiotics and I have... I love kombucha. You know, those are supposed, according to some research, some people did. Not that I could cite my sources, which seems to be important in actual science. Um, I'm Slow told clap over here. that you're, uh, that you're, <laughs> that your, your stomach microbiome does have an impact on your happiness. But I've noticed it has also an impact on my digestion. So that's one of the things I can observe in myself. Oh, definitely. The microbes in us are doing remarkable things. And I mean, we know about some of them. They're breaking down plant material for us. They're uh, creating vitamins for us. They are interacting with our immune system, which in turn influences everything from our broad health to aspects of our mood. There's just a lot more yet to figure out than there is known. Sure. Why they're inspirational for me Mm -hmm. is that they do a really good job of taking the crap that is around them and turning it into high value items did you just call microbes optimistic yes i did i consider them to be motivational really they are my gurus (laughs) that's awesome one of the many hats that i wear is Mm -hmm. chief scientific officer at a company and there we use yeasts that come from wasps and bumblebees and all sorts of bugs to make new beer flavors yes yes and we're expanding from beer into sake and cider and all of these different fermented beverages and we're going over the data and it's really interesting to talk to experts in the field of of wine and food and they're like you know what we really want our microbes to be able to do X, Y, and Z. We want them to create hmm. these flavor profiles because flavor is super complex trait yeah. because it's aroma, it's taste, it's mouthfeel, different molecules involved in all <laughs> of those things. Yeah. Um, and so they're interested in finding microbes that can do this. And we found microbes in a wasp that are really good at producing floral and honey aromas And we think it's because, evolutionarily, the microbes are signaling to the wasps that there's sugar for them to find in the form of nectar or rotting fruit or tree sap. And that by the yeasts creating these floral and fruity aromas, the wasps go on over to them and then act as an airplane, bringing those immobile yeasts from sugar source to a sugar source. And so I like that whenever we have a beer made from these yeasts, we're enjoying the same flavors and aromas that wasps are. I like being connected in that way to little things that I don't think about. People think bugs are gross and weird, and they don't think they want to taste them. 
But how much do you like honey, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. And it's not just about flavor. There's also microbes right now that can break down plastic. So anything that you can imagine in the world that today is a problem, whether it's plastic, whether it's a pesticide that won't go away, whether it's even a greenhouse gas, there is a microbial species out there that has evolved an ability to munch on that and poop out something different. <laughs> and so what I get really excited about these days is how, knowing that there's a trillion microbe species around us, how do you find that microbe that does that so that we can right. then harness it and do what we do with yeast to make beer, grow it up and yeah. give it the space to make our world better. Well, and there's so many yeast strains that have been used for hundreds of years in certain kinds of beers. Yeast is like the secret magic. I mean, people used to pray to God or whatever they prayed to that their beer would ferment because that was the only way they could get anything safe to drink. And we've been cultivating some of these same yeast for centuries, millennia. And you're saying, wait, do not rest. We're not done. There's more and we can make it better. I mean, as a home brewer, I want to get my hands on some of these yeasts. I'm excited for more chances to experiment with different flavors, especially I think bugs are cool. Yeah. <laughs> so... Bugs with little bugs. You're all about the little bugs on the big bugs. The little... So many bugs. I study so many bugs. Bugs The bugs on bugs. bugs on bugs. Yes. Bugs on bugs on bugs. Yes. Now we're talking. Yes. <laughs> Someday soon, hopefully, we'll be able to release our yeasts for the home brewers market because it's been really cool to work with commercial brewers yeah. and see what they've done with these yeasts because the yeast are functionally tools. Mm. And as you know, changing temperature parameters or yeah. how long you're brewing them or what you're brewing them with or what you're adding sure all changes a beer and it's really fun to see what brewers have done with it well i eagerly await the results of that so i can use it in my creative beer making Andy's gonna get to try a beer tonight that's made with one of the bumblebee yeasts he doesn't know this yet though <laughs> yes life is good Let's get into the river of suck, eh? Yeah. Let's so, dive in. Do you skinny dip through the river of suck or do you wear lots of equipment? Is anybody watching? <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> well, the river of suck is an imaginary river in your mind. So if it helps you to be naked, heck yeah. Skinny dipping. Skinny dipping through the river of suck with Ann Madden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you're standing on one edge, and behind you is your comfort cave, and you're standing on your comfort shore, and you're looking across the river to the other side, where you see future versions of yourself who can do the things that you wish you could do now. Yeah. And uh, you're all jealous of the future versions of yourself. <laughs> you're like, oh, look at them. Gosh, I wish I could do that. And the problem is, you're you now today. You want to get to the other side, but in between is the raging whitewater rapids of the River of Suck, the rocks that create those rapids, and worst of all, thought piranhas, everyone's worst enemy, the negative thoughts that appear in your head trying to self-sabotage us. Why are they here? What are they doing? 
Stop making me afraid of everything. Thought piranhas. Scary, scary thoughts, you know? So that's the river of suck. And the idea is that in order to get to the other side, accomplish your goals, you're going to need to suck at something before you can be good at it. You're going to need to dwell in this process land where you want to do a thing, but it's just not coming out right yet. And you have to trudge through some mud with rocks and get bit by piranhas and... It sucks to suck. Yeah. So that's the river of suck. My question to you is, how do you see this river of suck in your life or your science or your science life? Yeah. The river of suck comes to me as all of the catastrophes that have never happened but could and all (laughs) of the catastrophes that have happened and the weight of all of that feels exhausting. Oh, man. And uncertainty. And so it becomes knowing that if I could be more confident, if I could not get in my own way, I could be on that other side of the river of suck. And instead, it's like my body is refusing to swim. Hmm. And so there's that extra layer of, oh, no, this is my own fault that I can't get across the river. So it's all very abstract. It often comes down to fear of... Failure? There's absolutely fear of failure, but failure looks like different things. Right. So as one example, I get very scared before I give any talk. This is something that not everyone is familiar with, but anyone who has ever been in my life 24 or 48 hours before okay. I've given a talk, I am sobbing. I am. Oh, wow. I am a mess. Like, I think the TED staff actually, like, have jokes about me. I am a mess. I have no confidence. And I think about not, you know, oh, no, I'm scared about going on stage, but of letting people down. Hmm. Like, I have this opportunity to talk about microbes. And what if I don't do a good job? What are all the consequences of that? Or as a woman in science, what happens if I suck? Will that hurt someone else? So this is why we're talking about this in a way that people can listen, because we all experience these fears and we think that we're alone, but we're not. Everyone feels this way. When I watch a video of you speaking on the TED stage, you look super confident. You look super passionate. You sound it. Everything's awesome. It's a great talk. I can't see any of that that you're saying happened, which I believe you but you got out there and you did it. So what happened in between the sobbing and getting out on stage? I've been told I have a very ugly process, but that that's okay for the deliverable. That's the river of suck. Yeah. It's the ugly process. It's super ugly process. Um, Tell me about this ugly process. Yeah. So it happens in science. It happens in research. It happens in business. Giving a talk is such a good example because it happens over mm-hmm. and over again and it shares a lot of the same uh, parallels. So I'll get invited to give a talk and it's shocking and wonderful and it's all of that serotonin and dopamine of, oh my gosh, someone wants to hear something that I have to say that feels so glowy and shiny and uh, kittens and butterflies and all of those good things. (laughs) And then like pretty much immediately I'm excited about Uh the like puzzle of how do you talk about something in a new way that might engage an audience. Right. give a different kind of talk to K through 12 students than you give to technology Mm -hmm. moguls. Um, So I like that. Then it's, then it's a puzzle. 
And then almost immediately after that, and we're talking in the span of a few hours, it starts crashing into the, oh no, what have I done? So you've said yes, and then oh, yeah, it really absolutely. hits you. Oh yeah, thank you so much. This is magical. Get really excited. Text friends, text my sister. Oh my God, this is really fun. <laughs> um, and then... There's usually a point right in there that they've started to get into the pattern of knowing of like, Anna, are you sure you want to give another talk? Like you told me last time to say no to you. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, it's going to be great. This one's going to be different. It's not going to take that much time. I'll be fine. <laughs> and then I get really nervous. And it's about believing that I will let people down. Hmm. Certain TED events, you're you're looking out and you see political leaders, you know, Al Gore's over there to the left and Sergey Brin of Google's <laughs> over to the right. And like, I think that's Carly Kloss in the background and Super. That's not intimidating and, at all. But, but those are not my most intimidating audience members because honestly, they're probably not going to remember who I am. Okay. Not really care and not going to influence my world much. Hmm. But I will almost never give a practice talk in front of people who know me hmm. because I care about my friends and my family and what they think of the work that I do. Were you also worried about your own expectations of yourself, letting yourself down, not just other people or even like hearing your voice? So I don't re-listen to a lot of my talks. I get very much <laughs> in my head and, and like, oh, I'm making a weird face. Like go back to my Ted talk. I make like a frog face at one point. Don't know when I developed that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you start to overthink things and just do a lot of negative critiques. Uh, and so I try and move on once I've done something. Um, Fair enough. But... But Al Gore, no problem. I mean, <laughs> then it just becomes a funny story. Like, Al oh, Gore yeah. is a stranger, right? Like, sure. It really doesn't matter. Stranger, Al Gore. Um, yeah, but like family and friends, um, or even people I was working with. So staff of Ted, so, okay. like that. So is it easier to talk in front of people you don't know or scientists in your field compared to general public? So scientists are just one type of audience. And they and I think that any talk for me is more scary if I don't think that I have a handle on what the audience is expecting and okay. what they value. Hmm. And so sometimes that's been a mismatch. Uh, I've gone into academic spaces where scientists are expecting a a specific type of talk and it's usually like 45 minutes or an hour and I, I hate giving really long talks because they're really boring and I get bored by my own voice <laughs> and I've had those real misses and I I'm watching the audience and so when they start to do the glare and the checking phones you're like oh no like I failed at doing this and that means that the information is not being conveyed and that feels like a such a missed opportunity because it takes so much energy to put together any kind of project. Okay, so I watched a TED Talk from 2017, and I think that's probably your famous popular one. I don't know. Yes. The one that's been seen by the most people. Yes, probably that one. Yep. The one where I said sex on your face on the same stage that the Pope spoke on the day before. Yeah. Yeah, that, that one. one. Yep. Claim to fame right here. In 2019, you did, was it somewhere in India? No. Yes. Yes. In Mumbai. Mumbai. Okay. You looked a little bit more confident in that one. I guess I'm wondering if you feel like you've learned anything since you started giving these big 
talks that get recorded. If you make a frog face, it's on the internet forever. If you stutter, anything you do will not just be seen by the people in the room, but potentially analyzed and just seen by people because the internet, nothing ever disappears. So don't ever do anything in your life you'll ever regret because it'll be up there forever. Holy cow, what a world. He's spawning piranhas right now. (laughs) (laughs) Right? I mean, I guess I'm just wondering like what you learned about this level of public speaking in between, or are you just getting better by doing it? I think that there's definitely an aspect where I get better at public speaking with the experience. Like so many things, the Mm -hmm. more you do it, the more it starts to feel like the flow, almost muscle memory Um, and trust. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't get up there and like poop on the stage the first time. I probably won't this time. Sure. I mean, I was terrified before that talk too. So it's one of those funny things that I think I understand it's part of my process. Mm -hmm. And that that... I've had a couple talks where I haven't been at all terrified. Like, oh God, I'm really, like, calm and like, oh, yeah, let's, let's do this. This is going to be great. And they don't have the same level of energy to them. Hmm. And so I am learning oh, yeah. that there's somewhere in between where mm. I do need to put that focus and energy on it. It doesn't have to take so much of me that I am a mess. <laughs> um, but it's a process of creation. It, it does sure. take work. If you're sobbing backstage, I mean, there are people who would sob and then who wouldn't go on stage. That's the moment of self-destruction where they just, everything explodes, the emotions go awry. I can't do this. But you didn't do that. You didn't say, I can't do this. You acknowledged that it was hard and then you did it. Yeah. How did you do that? So my skill set is in finding the most incredible friends in the world. Like I do think that that is my superlative skill. Okay. And often in my times where I'm most doubting myself, I turn to some of those friends or my sister, and they remind me of who I am. Mm. And in that, they sort of question my illogic, that like some of the narratives that I'm mm-hmm. saying are just, they're just fear rather than being a fear that can be helpful. And I distinguish yeah. the two because it's one, it's, you know, okay, yeah, you should practice. Like if you don't know the words right now. And you're afraid of... You should be really nervous. You're not ready. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Like, it should motivate you to get ready. But then there's a point where it's, like, true imposter syndrome or when it's just fear without words, when it's that fear in the body. Hmm. Um, And that's where my friends are truly kind and patient and deserve all the credit in the acknowledgement sections of any talk that I give, where they just sort of walk me back from the cliff, where it's like, all right, but remember... We love you no matter what. So Yeah. So they're the emotional support, yeah. but you won't practice in front of them. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> I, I have work to do. I'm a really great therapist. I'm working on this stuff. Oh, hey. <laughs> Wait. So you have a therapist and you're willing to admit it. Can Absolutely. we talk about that? Yeah. A lot of people think they have problems and they won't talk to anybody about it. Oh, my gosh. I <laughs> love learning from professionals. I think that that's my, like, dictum to go by, you know? Like, where do I learn about cool coffee stuff? From Mm -hmm. people that do a lot of research and work on coffee. And what kind of music do I like? People that are spending time with their craft. And so I feel that way about therapy, where it's, like, people that are trained to help me work through the things that we all have to some degree. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's great to have someone that can help you on something and that they're professionals in that space so i find therapy useful i don't really like it it's hard but i find it really useful this is a really good space to talk about this because 
some of the people who seem like they need therapy the most would be the most resistant unless they're super open-minded. I think that it would be treading on dangerous territory for almost anyone that I know for me to go to them and be like, you need therapy. Like, I don't think it's appropriate for me to say that to most people. Yeah. But I mean, I recommend it. Like, even if you think you're like, oh my gosh, my life is at the most amazing point. Mm -hmm. Like you're sitting back there and you're just like, I got, I got it all. Whatever all means to you, you have it all. You sleep well. Tell me what that's like. Like if you're in that space, go get a therapist now. Life's full of ups and downs. It's Mm. the only constant. And it's way easier to have the tools and skills developed before you need them. So I'm a proponent for like prophylactic therapy as well. I don't know what that is. Like therapy before you need it. So okay, yeah. Prophylactic antibiotics. Like before you get hit with the pathogen that's going to make you super sick and have any kind of disease, you take some antibiotics. Nice. Yeah. It always comes back to microbes. Yeah. At least in this house. One hundred percent. Except cats are not microbes, and we still like them. They carry microbes with them. (laughs) And unique ones. Ooh. Cat microbes. Yes. One of the reasons that I'm so excited to talk to scientists is because they don't always take failure personally. They say, oh, well, negative result. I didn't do the right experiment or we need to do more experiments. Not, I'm terrible at this. I'm a bad person. And so I'm really interested in hearing, like, what do you consider to be failure? And why is failure a good thing? Or why is it? I mean, I don't know. What is failure? I think it's a great question to think about what is failure? Because there's the idea of a failed experiment. So often in science, things fail. I remember when I was a young science and in industry trying to develop novel antibiotics and had this beautiful test and the chemical that we were really interested in going to going to be the next greatest antibiotic. I came in and the test revealed that nope, it's like really good at killing microbes, but it's also really good at killing human cells. So that's just mm. bleach functionally. Ooh. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so I was I was really sad and one of my coworkers had been a professional scientist for a long time. And he goes, he like looks at me and he like giggles. And he's like, why did you ever think it would work? Science <laughs> is 99% failure. That's a very sad thing to hear as a young scientist because you you almost feel like, oh, this is an impossible trek that you're mm-hmm. about to go on. Sure. But it does also make these moments when you find new truths or you discover new species or something works, they're, they bring great elation. Yeah. It's like, oh my gosh, it's despite it all. Yeah, 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 despite it all, there were so many late nights and painful, mm. painful amounts of work and hardship. You mean the river of suck? So much sucking from the river. <laughs> just like a waterfall of suck. Yeah. And <laughs> and yet in that you saw that it polished the stones that ended up being the things you wear in your necklace. I don't know. It's just uh Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Getting through it. Seeing the the beautiful moments. So would you say that failure is a crucial part of your life? Oh, failure is absolute. Failure is the journey of my life 
is failure is a crucial part of my life in terms of every step along the way, including that sentence. <laughs> but, but, but you never quit. You kept going. Yeah. How did you keep going? So I get asked that and upon reflection, it never felt like I had a choice to quit. Hmm. That's why I never quit music. Awesome. <laughs> As a bad attitude little kid, that is why I didn't quit music. I didn't think I would be allowed to. Yeah. So I think that's that. There's some huh. like enough years in, like, was I going to just turn away from science? I mean, I joke about that all the time, that I want to start a goat farm. Mm-hmm. But then whenever I start talking about that, invariably I'm like, oh, yeah, and then I'll make cheese and I'll find new microbes on goats. And the joy sort of pulls me back. And I think that that's part of the resilience is in remembering that um, that a lot of it is hard, but there is something that I find joy mm. in and that yeah. feels like it's me. And I can't actually quit it on a big scale. On a small scale, it might have been healthier for me to quit, actually, to listen to some of that fear at some point. Well, I'm stoked you didn't. There, I mean, <laughs> broadly, I'm happy I'm a scientist. But. Yeah. Do you find sometimes that you're working so hard on a problem that you're so zoomed in that the answer only comes when you're like running or taking a shower or like eating a sandwich or doing something else that's not specifically trying to accomplish the task that you're working on. I find that I'm my most creative and that's usually when I find solutions when I'm exposed to a lot of different types of information. So it's usually when I'm out in the world mm -hmm. and I'm meeting up with friends that are in business and friends that are in economics or artists and start talking to them about the things going on in their world, the challenges that they face professionally, mm -hmm. and that that's when connections get mm. made that I wouldn't have thought about afterwards. And so, so often my life is about finding microbes that can help solve problems. And there's two different ways of approaching that. You yeah. have this problem. Oh my gosh, we want to break down plastic. So go on a hunt for things, for yeah. microbes that break down plastic. But there's another way that people don't often talk about, which is, okay, you found some of these microbes that like didn't do a great job at breaking down plastic, but they have these other unique skills. Like this one happens to grow at this really cold temperature. Where would that ever be useful? And that where would that ever be useful is oftentimes where you can find really remarkable things. Hmm. So you're talking about meeting different kinds of people. Do you think there's even a getting outside of your comfort zone of people that, you know, element to that too, just being challenged on your ideas. And you know, it's, that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. <laughs> oh yeah. So I love meeting new people. That's a very weird thing about me and unusual, at least within my field. Okay. Um, that's the uh, <laughs> notable <laughs> trait that I have. That's different um, from a lot of people, not everyone, but, a lot mm -hmm. of people. Uh, it's not what people think of when they think of scientists. I'm not reserved. I'm super happy to go all the way down talking about everything um, on a plane. So beware if you sit next to me. It's, uh... She'll be in row uh, 22 <laughs> in the aisle seat. <laughs> Bring her your plugs. Um, <laughs> I really love in general meeting new people because I get to hear their stories and 
two things. Yes, I learn about new things, you know, challenges of mm-hmm. one profession or another. But there's another point where you talk to enough people and you find out that the wealthiest people in the world are also struggling with the same struggles that I feel like I've faced. Mm-hmm. And the people that are the most successful or the most beautiful or the most glamorous or seem like they walk into a room and you're just like, oh, what's that like? Like, that's the confidence of, like, wearing a white suit. (laughs) Uh, And yet those people you talk to and they're like, they're terrified of what's going to happen to their kids. Right. Or they're terrified of boredom. Or they're also terrified of financial crises even though they're very far away from it but there's a being unified with Mm -hmm. humans over shared experiences something i find really valuable maybe that's one connection even between musicians and scientists is i think we're correct me if i'm wrong but we both interface sometimes with some of the people with the least money but also some of the richest people in the world and some people in the middle. And I think what you're saying is just, they're all people. Yeah. And that's important to remember. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's kind of fun being able to talk to people of the different, I hate to say classes, but this is a world of economies and uh, capitalism and it does change people. But I don't want to be stuck talking to one kind of people. For I think I'm with you. Meeting new people is in its own way a comfort zone. You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of boredom. Oh, big, huge fear. (laughs) Huge fear is boredom. Like if I'm being challenged on my ideas, cool. That's great. That's not boring. Yeah. And, (laughs) And so, okay, great, great example from the other day. I'm coming back from a few days trip and Mm -hmm. I've given a talk and I've had some business meetings and met up with some colleagues and like there were a lot of highs and lows like life is full of adventures and catastrophes and it I I was dealing with the (laughs) emotional repercussions of all of those things swirling around in my head. I get in my lift um, and the lift driver's like how are you doing and I was like oh roller coaster of a day and he laughs he's like I was I was not expecting you to say that. And I was like, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, it's nice to meet you. Uh, Why are you down here? How are you doing? He's like, well, I just retired. I used to live up in New York City and I worked for the subway. Hmm. And I was like, oh, I bet you have stories that I've never even thought about. Yeah. And he goes, well, yeah, one day, he's like, a lot of people don't know that a lot of people commit suicide in the New York subway. And he's like, one day I was there, someone had just done that on the tracks and I was really struggling with it and I go up to my supervisor and I go I just I got to take a drive I got to get away from this experience Mm -hmm. supervisor said sure no problem he's like I go out to my car and half of the body is on my car because it was an elevated rail whoa and I was like sir I'm so sorry before when I said my day was a roller coaster I lied That day was a roller coaster. I'm fine. (laughs) I just had some meetings and like maybe have to think about my confidence in certain science spaces. Perspective. Huge perspective. And I feel like (laughs) that is the gift that I get sometimes from interacting with people is perspective. Yeah. Could all use a little perspective. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. When are the piranhas really piranhas and when are they minnows with big shadows? Whoa. Hold on. Stop the presses. (laughs) Minnows with big shadows? Tell me about that. So I think it's important for me to understand perspective because all of my fears can feel overwhelming. Mm -hmm. 
And that's not, that's not helpful for me because right. then I just get overwhelmed. And that's what stops me from being my meest me. Uh-huh. And so I like the perspective, whether that's from learning about what other people are going through, from experiencing the world, from helping someone else and kind of getting a little bit of like, okay, you're this, there's a lot of ego in that fear that you have. Um, all of that sort of helps me understand when, when a fear is truly overwhelming, when it can be educational, mm-hmm. and when it needs to be just ignored. Wow. That is the real right there. And Madden, just saying. <laughs> Cue cool music. How do you stay positive in the face of impossible seeming challenges? Imposter syndrome, self-doubt, or like a world of people denying that science is real. Do you have any strategies to deal with any of that? How do you get through the big bads? <laughs> so one, I mean, I think one is community. Okay, and yeah. for me, that really helps like whether it's... Um... It's so funny. Community was the one word that I didn't say out of all the bubbles. <laughs> And you got to the one word I didn't say. So it yeah. must be something about the community of people that we surround ourselves with. Yeah. Yeah. Your support team. Yeah. And it's it's solidarity. I think part of the job of being a, a friend, a good collaborator, a colleague is inspiring the best in others, but also reminding them of their best selves. Mm-hmm. And that's important to me because I don't like feeling alone. If it's the idea that... Uh, Vaccines. Vaccines are awesome technology. Mm-hmm. Keep us all safe. Really remarkable. Yeah. And yet there's a big fraction of the population that doesn't believe this. Right. And it leads to horrible consequences. Um, that can feel daunting and isolating, and it's pretty easy to give up in that space. Mm-hmm. But community can help provide that buffer to keep hope alive. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that's key is like for me getting that energy to keep going through those moments and knowing that there will be an adventure to go along with that catastrophe. There will be hmm. a moment where you, in grad school, I used to have a story of a, the turtle moments. And so this is a very small scale story, but it works mm-hmm. throughout sure. other examples where I'm in the rainforest doing research. And one weekend I'm at a beach and like a beach clubbing thing. <laughs> uh, it's a lot of fun, but I'm with three or four friends and we realized that all of the taxis have stopped going back down hmm. the street to the hotels. And so I have to walk down the beach a few miles now in the middle of the night without headlamps. <laughs> and this is a space where like there are ants that come through that you walk through and just start stinging and biting. And I'm tired and I've been working this whole summer without sleep. And I'm just like, <laughs> this is the worst. I made so many bad decisions that got me to this moment where I'm walking in the dark alone in the heat with bugs stinging me. Yeah. Hating everything. And then I walk over what looks like four-wheeler tracks hmm. going up the beach. And I was like, wait, brain is processing. Like, there are no four-wheelers in this part. Something's off. And so we take a step back and realize that there's a giant Oliver Ridley sea turtle nesting. And these are the turtles that are like bigger than four wheelers. They are huge animals. And in this perfect, beautiful moment, in the silence of a Costa Rican 
evening, I get to watch a giant turtle lay eggs. Whoa. And it was magical. And it's like, okay, this is a turtle moment. Like when I feel at my worst, it's right before something cool happens, something beautiful. And I think that I have to remember those past experiences to Mm -hmm. get through some of the really rough ones that happen where, okay, this is daunting. I feel alone. This is horrible. Yeah. But it won't stay like this. Hmm. What are your turtle moments, listeners? Send River of Suck podcast an email to andyreinerfiddle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your turtle moments. We'll send them to Anne. <laughs> yes. <laughs> turtle moment. That could be a song. Like that story, and, the tur- and it's called Turtle Moment. I was on the beach, walking on home, when I saw four-wheeler tracks, but it wasn't a four-wheeler track. I had a... Turtle moment, turtle moment, turtle moment, turtle moment. I was on the beach, walking on home when I saw four wheel tracks, but it wasn't a four wheel tracks. I had a turtle moment, turtle moment, turtle moment, turtle moment. Turtle moments, turtle moments, turtle moments, Umbrella, gender issues in science. What's going on over there? And <laughs> are you doing okay? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, maybe it's better than it was. Um, it's frustrating as f- when that has to be the discussion about anything related to science. Like, oh, and she's a woman scientist. Oh, yeah. Or... Being in a business meeting with my co-inventors, and people keep assuming I'm the student. My wife is a doctor of cello, and she, quote, looks like she could be a student, and people underestimate her all the time. So you, I'm guessing you're getting that too. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of assumptions that we make as people and I dye my hair blonde and I show up in stilettos. And so I, it's not often assumed that I'm the one in the room with the most education route microbes. Um, and when I, uh, I do a lot of work communicating science and I think that that's really important, but very often people will then assume that I'm quote unquote, just the communicator sure, rather than the person that's doing oh, yeah. the work or the strategy work or building businesses. But you just want to be yourself and part of, being yourself is wearing what you want to wear because that makes you feel comfortable and you're a scientist. Yep. So get used to what scientists look like, world. Yeah. It used to be my quiet act of rebellion. When I was in middle school, hmm. I started wearing heels or even younger at that age. Um, and people made fun of me like, oh, are you going to a business meeting? Um, <laughs> and then I'm in science and it's people are like, I um, I almost didn't get accepted into my PhD lab, actually, because I showed up in, like, suit pants and high heels, and they were like, mm, there's going to be a lot of field work, you're going to have to go out and get dirty, 
But at some point, uh, it's the winter and it's Massachusetts. And the people that are interviewing me bring me out to an apiary, a place where they keep bees in a mm-hmm. shed. And they're like, oh, we can't bring you inside because it's iced over. And I said, oh, no worries. And then I proceed to chip away all the ice with my high heel. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay, you're good. This will be fine. And so the clothes are, they are what I feel most comfortable in. You can't look too good. You can't look too bad. What are you supposed to do? Like, it's an impossible goal that, you know, it's like, it's, there's like, how do you win that? Right? It hurts a lot when you start to believe that no matter how good you are, you still can't succeed because it's not about you. It's about the system. And it's that, you know, death by a thousand cuts. So it's one of those, like, it never really hurts whenever anyone says it just, oh, oh my gosh, I thought you were in marketing. I never knew you were a scientist. But there's a message that you start internalizing Mm -hmm. of, um, I've been told, oh, it's impressive that you're a scientist given the way you look. And that's not the message that I want people to hear in the world, because that has a lot of meaning behind it that I don't want any other woman or young girl right to internalize dang real talk real talk so the discussions about the systemic problems that we face whether it's gender discrimination in science so many other things too sucks in itself because it feels hopeless Hmm. like oh how am i supposed to combat that i have no ownership over that and so what i do like is that I'm mindful now when I'm doing collaborations with mm-hmm. other scientists, with artists, all sorts of people, to understand how to do it more ethically. Hmm. And in that, we create statements of, okay, how do we make sure that we have voices represented from not right. just those voices that tend to get the podium? Yeah. And how can I be mindful about choosing partnerships that elevate people who don't have that space. And so that's been really fun is to try and create a better future than the one that maybe I experienced. And knowing that I experienced a lot of privilege and that also enabled me to get here Mm -hmm. um, just to make sure that continue to make it a better system rather than just throw up my hands and say, this sucks, I hate it, (laughs) feels unfair. (laughs) It does sometimes suck to be a woman in science. And I can only imagine what it's like to be a person of color in science. And I can only imagine what it's like to be a woman who's a person of color in science. But that there are ways to make this space better. Mm -hmm. And that that is what helps me navigate that part of the river of suck, is to make it better concretely and to not feel like I'm trapped in someone else's idea of what things should be like. Yeah. Didn't she win some kind of crazy award at some point? Are you speaking of my Amazing Hair Award? Yeah, you won the Amazing (laughs) Hair Award. I am the 2015 Luxurious Flowing Hair Club for Scientists Woman of the Year. My hair now exists in two museums, one in Europe and one in the U.S. What? I know, my claim to fame. How does that make you feel, like, as a scientist to be singled out for your hair? I mean, I kind of love the ridiculousness of it because it's all from a society that sort of revels in the whimsy. Yeah. Let's not take science too seriously. So let's create the Society for Scientists just about ridiculous hair. (laughs) Um, And it's by the same group that produces the Ig Nobels. Right. So these awards that make you laugh and then think. 
it was a surprise honor to be awarded that. I love it because it it has nothing to do with merit. I don't particularly have good hair. Usually when I say like, oh, I have this hair award, people look at my hair and then they're like, really? Like your your hair looks a little overprocessed, maybe like a little, little rough. But awards make people think differently. I'm like, oh, well, Anne's won awards for her hair. She has great hair. Yeah, right. And like, that's how <laughs> ridiculous it is, right? Like it's on my Wikipedia page. Like Anne has the most famous hair in science. And that, that doesn't matter. And I, I enjoy that whimsy. What parallels do you see between art and science? Oh, I love this question. Um, (laughs) So I have to say I'm not an artist. My mother is an artist and my sister is trained in art, um, though I'm not sure she would now identify as an artist. And growing up, I did not have science parents. So I did not have that as a model. My dad was a businessman. My mom was an artist and an incredible athlete. And what I think science is, is much more similar to art than what a lot of people initially describe, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, There's a space of incredible creativity that's required. Yeah. And uncertainty. And then you spend a lot of your your energy, your heart, your soul, your time creating something that then you put forth to be judged by your peers. Mm -hmm. The people that know the most and judge the harshest (laughs) and everybody else. And that you are in a space where you also have a lot of uncertainty in terms of hmm. the process, yeah. in terms of the what you create, in terms of how it is received, in terms of what your job then is in this world of jobs and careers. People think of science and art sometimes as callings. Mm-hmm. Oh, it is your higher calling. But at the same time, we we all do need to get paid in different ways. Mm -hmm. And there's an interesting discourse there on, are you providing a service? Are are you doing something that is your skill? Are you doing something that you are good at? People Mm -hmm. say, oh, uh, well, you're a scientist. Well, I've never been good at math. No, no, no. no. Like, I, I build up skills in my space. Yeah. And I've noticed the same thing with friends who are artists who people are like, oh, oh, I don't, I don't draw. I don't, I can't do that. And it's like, these were developed and honed skills. Right. Um, you too can have <laughs> skills. Right. That's why we dive in. We do not dip our toes cautiously into the river. We dive in head first and we get wet. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there are a lot of parallels between cool. art and science. Tell us real quick, why should we follow you on Instagram? Are you like making cool pieces of art with mold or something? I definitely like delving into the cool world of microbes, whether it's through art exhibits or through the lichens and mold that you can find on a nature walk or the microbes in new beers that I get to try. Hmm. There's a, we can see them. They look cool. They do look cool. Even unfiltered. <laughs> nice. How do we find you on Instagram? On Instagram and Twitter, I'm Anne, A-N-N-E, A, Madden. So A-N-N-E-A-M-A-D-D-E-N. Okay. Anne, A, Madden. 
Sweet. So that's like a middle initial. It is. And with an E, A in the middle, Madden. Like the footballer's shoe. And you've also got a website. And amadden.com. No way. Look at that. What are we going to find on your website? On my website, you'll find some links to some of the research that I've done, as well as some of the collaborations that I've got going in either the brewing space, the art space, or in the education space. Cool. So if you want to learn more, anamadden.com, anamadden Instagram, anamadden Twitter. You will see a tea light that is powered entirely by soil microbes and happily blinking away. By what microbes? Soil microbes. Swale? What is a swale? Soil. Soil. Soil Soil microbes. They are also swale microbes. Swale, like a kind of bird that you get on the... Okay. No one ever said crossing the River of Suck would be easy or that you had to do it alone. So thanks for tuning in and giving it a chance. I'll be back with a new episode every month forever so make sure to subscribe wherever you listen leave a review here's an action item open your favorite social media app facebook instagram twitter or all of them right now and make a post about how this episode had an impact on you be sure to visit riverofsuck.com for all the latest updates and to check out our stylish blue swim team t-shirts Become a member of the River of Suck swim team for just $1 a month to support this podcast and access boatloads of extended interviews and full music tracks. My name is Andy Reiner. My name is Ann Madden. Till Til next, next time, time keep, keep swimming. swimming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sturdle moments, 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 sturdle moments,